Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. We do make that last courtesy reminder to our in-house guests. It's always appreciated if our cell phones and our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And the program will be posted on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Leading our discussion and welcoming our guest is Robin Sincox. Robin serves as Margaret Thatcher Fellow in our Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. He specializes in terrorism and national security issues. Prior to arriving at Heritage, he was a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, a foreign policy think tank in London. He has testified before Congress on multiple occasions, as well as provided oral evidence before parliamentary committee uh, hearings examining laws and governance of British intelligence agencies. Please join me in welcoming Robin Simcox. Robin? Thank you, John, and and, uh, thank you for all coming. Um, It's a great pleasure today to be able to introduce uh, Major Jason Chris Houck, Uh, an author, public speaker, adjunct lecturer, and advisor. Uh, He focuses primarily on Islam, foreign policy, national security, leadership, and strategy. He retired after 23 years in the U.S. Army, operating on joint interagency and multinational teams conducting defense, diplomacy, education, and intelligence missions. Jason holds an M.A. in Middle East and South Asia Security Studies from the Naval Postgraduate School, studied Dari and Arabic at the Defense Language Institute, and has focused his career on the broader Middle East and Islamic world. Uh, he's a Malone Fellow in Arab and Islamic Studies and a former term member on the Council on Foreign Relations. And here today he is here to discuss his uh, interpretation of, of the Quran. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Jason, and we're really looking forward to your comments. So please. Okay, can everybody hear me? I'm going to rove around a little bit today. Um, So I'm going to give you a quick uh, rundown on what I learned translating and interpreting the Quran. What I've learned in three years now traveling across America, talking to non-Muslims and trying to answer their questions about Islam and and, uh, different Muslim communities. And a a quick update about about ISIS and that relationship of Islamism and and terrorism and and Islam and where that all fits together. Uh, I start with this quote when I talk to people. Because when I, as I was uh, working through courses and talking around the country, the first thing people would ask me, you know, well, what is this about Islam as a religion of peace? You know, and that's always the default answer you get when somebody says, well, what, what is the relationship of terrorism to Islam? And nothing. Islam's a religion of peace. 
I said, okay, and then I get the other half of the audience in America that says, no, Islam is the most violent religion in the world. It's, it's, it's a satanic religion. You know, it's the religion of war. It's, it's violent. I said, okay, there's probably a middle ground here that we're not, we're not talking about. And I was speaking with my friend Abbas, and he sent this in an email to me. And I just think it's a great place to start a conversation uh, on Islam if you just think about it as a religion like any other. It's a belief system. Man can do whatever they want with belief systems. Uh, if you look at what's going on in Myanmar today, you'd definitely be shocked to find out that these are Buddhists uh, that are committing what looks like a genocide over there. So uh, we'll just start with this idea. As I talk today, make a space in your brain, three buckets, and this is how we'll, we'll talk about it. Islam or religion, uh, one of the third installment of this Abrahamic religion. Uh, Islamism is a political ideology, and I put it in red, think communism, capitalism, socialism. This really became super popular in the 1900s, but separate the religion from the political ideology, and that's an easy way to think about this. And then lastly, and I put in quotation marks, groups like ISIS. They're violent, they're radical, they're Islamists, but they don't want to vote for it. They'd rather kill you to get Islamism. That's their view of the world. Everybody needs to come to it, uh, and they'll take you there quickly. And they're also hearkening back to the Khawarij ideology, the first uh, group to split away from the Shia when the Sunni and Shia divide happened in Islam. They were some of the first terrorists in the Middle East. They had that belief that they understood Islam better than anybody. And if you didn't agree with them, they got to be judge, jury, and executioner. So three different buckets as we talk through today. All right. This is a quiz I, I give everywhere I go. Anybody got any answers for me? How many are terrorists and how many are American patriots? Is this making it any easier? How many are terrorists? How many are American patriots? There's no way to know, right? They're just first names. The backward is not working on me. There we go. These are all first names. But the first impression I get when I talk to people in America is 100% terrorist. That is the number one answer I get as I go around to different audiences. I didn't even get an answer. Already. We're going to have to get you crack the ice here a little bit. So... And what I like to explain to people is I wrote this list, so I know who these, these ten people are. Five of them are, are some of the worst terrorists we've ever hunted down. And five of them are American patriots. And one of them is a, a naval aviator uh, who's earned a medal for valor on the ground in Afghanistan, saving other soldiers' lives. So first names separate it from, you know, this idea. If it sounds Arabic or, or uh, Muslim or Persian, it doesn't mean it has something to do with terrorism. These are just names like everybody else is given at birth. Okay, interesting fact. If you've never looked at uh, the, the population of the world in religious terms, this is how it shook out last time Pew really did research in 2012. The numbers probably moved a little bit. Uh, but the most fascinating thing is not how close um, the Muslim and Christian number is and the fact that the Muslim number is growing faster. Look at the non-religious number. I think that's going to be the one that speeds past everybody because if you look at the next generation, that's where there's a big trend. So birth... This will tell you a lot about how the world is going to look. Uh, and we think by about 2060, just based on birth rates alone, uh, Muslims will be the largest religious group in the world. They will overtake Christians if the non-religious uh, belief system doesn't bypass that. And simply birth rates. Muslim women average about 2.9 children. All other religions, 2.2. So that's that's just math. We hear this word, the Muslim world. And I want to make sure... 
you understand it's not really a real place, but we throw this word around, and that's generally where people consider the Muslim world. You know, everywhere from India down in the Pacific, across North Africa, um, up into the old Soviet republics there. Does everybody know what the dark green spot is in the middle? This group will pick this up. All right, this is where most of the Shia live in the world. Muslims live in every country in the world. Shia live uh, with Sunnis in every country in the world. But this is where they are the largest majority. In these countries, 50% or more uh, in these. And it's growing quite quickly in, in Africa as you go farther south there. This is where you're going to see a lot of that growth. These countries in yellow where the percentage of Muslims is 10% now. And so that's where you're going to see a lot of this growth that's, uh, that people are talking about. So if you want to look at the map, even in South America. So these are places you're going to see growth in the next few decades. Just by country. Anybody know what this map is? What's this map telling us? Close. Hot spots for what? Terrorism. Last 45 years, these are the hot spots. Now, how many Muslims live in South America? Right there in those two hot spots, Peru and Colombia. Probably not a large number. So I like this because it's really good to, to demonstrate the disconnection between you know, religions. It's mostly when terrorism comes around, it's, of course, supposed to be related to political ideology. Uh, that's how we get to this idea of terrorism. So it's a good map to show uh, where terrorism actually moves around the world. All right. So what's going on with ISIS? A quick update. If you've never read the ISIS mission statement or their strategy, this is what they have been saying all along. It's not much different than what you'll hear if you talk to Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab or the Taliban, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, ISIS in Khorasan, wherever you go to find a terrorist organization in the modern world today, if they are an Islamist-inspired group, this is what they're shooting for. Okay. So that caliphate they refer to, India to Spain. That's that's what they're thinking of. They want to rebuild that. This is the largest caliphate there was before the caliphates start dividing and subdividing and splitting up and changing power. Uh, but that was it. That was the largest Isla Islamic empire. Um, I think this was around 650 or 750 uh, before they d divided this up, probably 750. This is where ISIS hung a flag. So they, they did cover a good chunk uh, of the earth before they started to get rolled back as a... As a uh, terrorist militia, an army on the ground, all the way into the Pacific now. Pretty good reach for as quickly as they developed uh, their group. By 2016, this was really the center of where they were. Uh, they had these these main spots in, in Syria and Iraq, and it erased that border between those two countries. This is December of last year. Those three red spots, that's where the ISIS army is today. So that's where they've been rolled back to uh, just since 2016. Pretty good uh, pushback. But this is just the militia on the ground, right? These are the guys. We saw how many flags they had posted in different countries around the world. Their idea spread much quicker and farther than anybody thought. Okay, so where is this picture of? These are eight-year-old kids at an ISIS school being indoctrinated on this idea of violent and radical Islamism, that they should be ISIS fighters one day. Is this Syria or Iraq? Malaysia. Young kids in Malaysia. Anybody know what this is? It's not calamari. It does look a bit like it. 
Right. So this, this is where ISIS is going. So ISIS has been rolled up on the battlefield in most places. But this map shows them returning home. Going back to where they were. You can see the thickness of the line tells you how many people are moving back there. As they started to lose the ground, uh, they're starting to push back towards their, uh, their homes. So this is the problem. Even though they've been rolled up on the ground, you don't shoot an ideology, you don't bomb an ideology. An ideology is going to continue to go. So you have to win that argument. You've got to talk about it. You have to understand it. That's one of the reasons I've been traveling around the country, help people understand uh, what their ideology is and how that differs from Islam. ISIS today shrunk down to an insurgency force in, in Iraq and Syria. They do have franchises in numerous countries. Libya is quite a hotbed. That did not turn out so well. Um, and just last month in Malaysia, they had about 250 people arrested for ISIS recruiting. ISIS has gotten their ideology out there. And that's, that's the piece that really needs to be worked on. So switching gears a little bit. Some key terms I want you to walk away with, make sure everybody understands them. So Islam, a religion uh, to Muslims, the third installment of the Abrahamic religion. It's divided into two major groups in the world today, the Sunni and the Shia. I take this down into real simple terms. Uh, the Sunni, that structure is the, it's the largest group of that subset, about 85% of the world, give or take. Uh, they, they operate more on the Protestant style of, uh, of religion, if you're, if you're familiar with that in America. Don't have the hierarchy uh, that you have on on the Catholic side. So you go to your local mosque, you have your local preacher. That's where you're, you do all your celebrations. That's where you go for questions. And you kind of, you read the book, right? That's where you get your, your ideas from. The holy text, you go to your local prayer leader. Shia have a structure for religious questions. And there's more uh, of this discussion about what does all this mean in modern times and how does that relate? Uh, so there are th- these levels, just like in Catholicism, you can go up. The Khawarij, a group most people haven't heard of, but they split away from the Shia. They didn't think the Shia or the Sunnis were Muslim enough for them. And they were very literal in their interpretation and their beliefs. Uh, and they terrorized uh, uh, Muslims all across the Middle East. And they were mostly hunted down and, and extinguished. Some of them uh, exist today in Oman, which is now the most uh, kind country, I would guess you could say, when it comes to Islam. So the Quran, the holy text, we'll talk a little bit more about what's in that. These are the recitations that the prophet Muhammad, uh, to Muslims, the last prophet of this Abrahamic tradition, gave to his followers in Arabia. There are also the hadiths, which are the things that Muhammad said during his life that weren't the word of God. They weren't given to him through the angel Gabriel to be recited to a crowd. So other people wrote those things down. They're collected in books. Not all Muslims agree on which hadiths are the right ones or actually accurate or should be followed or listened to. Or And the idea is you should always go back to the Quran if you have a question. And then the Sunnah, everybody remember those bracelets everybody wore that, what would Jesus do bracelets? Think about that. What would Muhammad do? The Sunnah, how did he live his life? How would, he's a role model, he's a prophet. Uh, think of it in those terms. Sharia law, no one's heard of that? Okay, so Sharia law, in, in a nutshell, if you took all the do's and don'ts, all the commandments out of the, out of the Quran and wrote them down, you would have Sharia law. If you lived exactly like that, just like if you go to most courthouses in America, you're going to see the Ten Commandments somewhere. Most of our law came from uh, those original Ten Commandments. So that's the idea behind it. Uh, that that's, that's basically it. It's a little bit different in every country. There were laws in Pakistan and Afghanistan long before there was Islam. So there are laws on the books and things that they think are religiously in line that existed long before and they're more cultural. Uh, so it's a little bit different wherever you go, but it should be the same, and that's the source. You go to the Quran. The caliphate we discussed, a religious empire, in this case, Islam. Uh, jihad, another word no one's heard of, right? Not a very popular word in the Quran, although if you watch the news, you would assume it's on every other page. Uh, shows up uh, 
about a dozen times. It means to struggle or to strive the best you can with your wealth and person to be a better Muslim, to improve Islam. So that's the idea. You struggle and strive uh, to be a better person. There are other words in Arabic for war, for combat, for kill, for attack, all that. Those words are in the Quran, and they are not the same as jihad. It's popular misconception that it just means holy war. That's what it is. So it's a good word in Islam. It is good to, to struggle and strive to be a better person. And I equate that to, uh, say you were a young lady uh, and you were born in, in the last caliphate in the Ottoman Empire and you wanted to grow up and be a, a nun. And you, you join the Catholic Church as a young adult and you end up in India taking care of lepers and you take care of you know, children and the sickest and the poorest people. And when you die, what are the, what's the Catholic Church going to call you besides Mother Teresa? Gonna call you a saint, right? It's that level of struggle and strife. So it's a good thing. Are there evil saints or radical saints or bad saints? We don't usually put that, those terms together, right? So I try to just let people know. If you don't know what jihad means, don't throw the word around. You're actually helping. This is an ideological war. You're giving the enemy propaganda points. If you start throwing out the word mujahideen and jihad and jihadi, you're literally complimenting a terrorist. You're calling a butcher somebody good. You can't undo that. You're helping the enemy by throwing that word around. So I tell people, stay away from it if you don't know what it means. Most people don't. Uh, Islamism, Islamist ideology. Again, this is combining religious ideas, in this case Islam, and governance, and putting all that into one person, giving them the power. Uh, I, you can imagine tomorrow what the world would look like if America became a Catholic nation, and a president walked in and said, everybody needs to go on ma- to Mass on Sundays. You know, Even the Catholics that go on Easter and Christmas would be kind of mad. Now I have to go to church every week. So that's the idea. It's usually church and state, mosque and state being separated is a better system. Most people get along with that. Salafism, Wahhabism, uh, these are terms. These are very conservative uh, Muslim thinkers that want to go back to the time of the prophet. They want to go back and live like the original uh, people did at the time of the prophet. That's kind of what they're all about. Rose-colored glasses, everything was great back then. If we just go back to those times and we live in that conservative way, of the 600s, you know, life will be better. You kind of askew modern things. And then we get down to violent radical Islamism or Khawarij ideology. This is the ideology of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It's, I want Islamism so bad, I will kill you to get there. And the first person they usually kill are the Muslims around them that disagree with them. They don't make a difference between what religion you are. You're just either with them or against them. Okay, the Quran, what's in it? And I spelled it with a Q. You may also see it spelled with a K. About 114 chapters. They're not usually chronologically written, so it's a little difficult to get through that 23 years of revelations when they're out of time sequence. Your brain's not kind of designed to do that. Over 6,000 verses took 23 years to be recited. It was gathered together after Muhammad's death. It took about 20 years to get it together and put it into its final form, and then it was distributed across the Muslim world as the final form in Arabic. And that is the same Quran today that is always put out in Arabic. Do most Muslims speak Arabic, though? No. So they're going to be reading a translation. And that's what we'll get into a little bit, the difference between these translations and interpretations. But in Arabic, it's always the same and unchanged, since those original ones were put out 20 years after his death. Why did I interpret it? I think it's hard to read a book that isn't chronological. A lot of the current English versions are pretty tough to read. They have a lot of Shakespearean English in them. It's it's a challenging read. Uh, and then a lot of things get added to other copies. And I, I wanted to get a, a translation out there f- for my friends. That, the one we were all looking for on September 12th in 2001. 
what is in the Quran and how can I read it quickly and how can I get through it? I wanted to make it simple like that and take out all the extra things that get added into the Quran and in various ways. And I think that education is a part of this tolerance uh, that we need in our society in every direction. These are not shocking things. This is what's in the Quran, creation story, commandments, what the end of times is like, the hereafter. Has anybody ever seen another book with that in it? Okay, so you're familiar with this idea. These are some of the folks you're going to run across when you read the Quran. And I would urge you to read the Quran. It doesn't matter whose you read, but I would I would read it if you want to know more about it. Anybody heard of these folks? You're probably familiar with a couple of these names. There's a whole chapter for Joseph. I know more about Moses and Pharaoh now after spending 13 months <laughs> translating the Quran than I ever did in, in as a Baptist in Bible study. Uh, so those are the big big stars of this book. These are a lot of the messages. Forgiveness is one of the top messages in the Quran. And you will find it on every page. That is one of the top messages. It's got a lot of other things. I think you're probably familiar with all of these. Again, not very different if you've read the Bible. If you've read the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you're going to come across these same ideas and concepts. If you take a word cloud of the most popular words in the Quran, if you pull out just the most popular words, this is what jumps out at you. These are the things that come out repetitively, more and more and more. Faithfulness, very important, clearly, right? Righteousness, the messenger, forgiveness, punishment. Orphans. Why is orphans up there? How did that, why did that pop in there repeatedly? Muhammad's an orphan. Uh, but Moses, I, I was stunned to see that Moses is one of the most popular words in the Quran. It, it was, I was surprised. I didn't know going into this what they were. I, I literally waited until I got to the end to do a, a word count of all of these. If you put it into a pie chart, most of the book is about God. Imagine that. It's a, a story about uh, God. Good and evil, heaven and hell, lots of different things. Those are the, those are the main uh, breakdowns of what's in the book, if you look at all the big topics in there. There are controversial verses. These are the ones that ISIS is going to put in their recruiting propaganda. This is what al-Qaeda is selling. This is what the Taliban are selling. That top one, when you need an unbeliever on the battlefield, you strike him in the neck. That's where you get all the all this attraction to beheadings. That's where this comes from. You can point to that. They'll take it out of context. They'll use it in whatever they want. But this is a, a phrase they're going to use over and over again. Those who die in God's way, those who are martyred, you've heard that word before, are going to go to paradise. That is used over and over again in all recruiting propaganda by, by terrorist organizations in the modern world. And then the last one, and this really goes back to that Quaritch idea. You can question another person's faith. You can, you can judge whether they have been striving hard enough in their life with all their wealth in person. That's a pretty, that could be used in a very dangerous way, if you can imagine. God is telling a prophet that it's okay to do this. This is used by groups like ISIS repeatedly. My clicker is flowing down on me. All right, there are some things that are helpful to women. What was going on in the 600s in Europe when the Quran was being revealed? What was happening in Europe? Good Vikings, right? Vikings wandering around. What were Vikings doing? Were Vikings talking about uh, rules for divorce for women and how to treat women respectfully and that men and women were equal in all things and what the dowry should be? Women should be treated honorably and not forced into marriage. These were some pretty radical concepts when Muhammad was was preaching in Mecca. This this upset the apple cart, as you can imagine. These were different things. This is one of the reasons this became a very popular religion, though. These were very good rules for 50% of the population. These were new rules. These set some standards in there. Uh, but there are always, I put an asterisk on there. There's always a loophole, right? Everybody's a lawyer. When they want to read a book, they can figure out how they can use it for their benefit. 
If you want to treat women honorably, you just don't let them out of the house, right? You make sure they're covered head to toe. Well, that's a man making up a rule and saying, well, it's in there. I'm doing the honorable thing. Or that men need to protect women. If men are responsible for protecting women, then shouldn't a woman always have a guardian, a male guardian with her everywhere she goes, right? Because a man is responsible for that. So you can use these to your advantage if you're a a male-dominated society, and and there's ways to do that. We see that every day. People often ask me my favorite verses. These are the ones that jump out at me. Choose to forgive when you're angry. Uh, Those are the best rewards. God rewards those who forgive and reconcile. And the most courageous way to act, most courageous way, that's a pretty big statement from God is to be patient and to forgive. Again, forgiveness comes up a lot in the Quran. I was surprised by it. I didn't know it was in there that much. What gets added to it? Now, if not, if most Muslims don't read Arabic, they're reading a translation. And they probably don't know the person who did the interpretation of the translation, right? They just get what's given to them at their mosque or by their family. You have introduction chapters. You have footnotes. You have parenthetical notes. You have indexes and appendixes in the back of these Qurans. And people write some pretty wild stuff. I would encourage you to just randomly pick up Qurans and see what gets added to the front or back or inside the footnotes of the book. People can write what they want. They can add what they'd like to add to it. And then when they get on stage, if they're a religious speaker, they can interpret verses however they want. That's their option, right? I grew up in a Baptist church in Vermont, and then we moved to the Deep South. And that was a whole different Baptist church. And they were reading the same text, but just the way that that preacher wanted to interpret it and what he spent his time on on Sunday was much, much different. No different there for religious speakers. So people add a lot of interesting stuff. There's statements from Saudi academia, religious scholars, from Saudi government officials, from other countries' governments. Uh, there's things about uh, denigration of Jewish people. There's an entire appendix in one Quran. I think it's 20 pages, 40 pages long about why Christianity is a false religion. Someone decided to stick that in the back of the Quran in English. It's not in the Quran, but it's in the book, right? So if if you don't know what you're reading, if you're reading it for the first time, you don't read Arabic, what do you know? You know what's in the book that's been handed to you. So these are some interesting things to note about interpretations and translations. And that's where a lot of the problems come from, because this is how ideas spread, right? Ideology gets spread. So how do you deal with that? How do you fight against people who are trying to push that ideology? I think first you've got to use the right terminology. Here the King of Jordan is doing that. You know, we are united to fight against those Kawaraj outlaws that have left Islam. He's not calling them jihadis. He's not calling them radical Muslims. He's calling them Kawaraj. They're outlaws. They're leaving our religion, and we've got to continue to segregate them away from it because they've been misled by this ideology. Um, I think in the Riyadh speech, that if you go back and look what President uh, Trump said in Saudi Arabia, he was trying to do that. He was trying to talk to the Muslim world, and that was a big audience to do that in and say, these are the issues. There is an issue with an ideology, and these are the words we should use to, to combat it, and we should fight against that. And that's continued. Uh, here we see the Prime Minister of the UK also using these, these the correct terminology to try to help Muslim allies who are also fighting against this kind of ideology. You've got to use the right words. And it's in now our own national security strategy. For the first time, our national security strategy in America actually outlines that we are dealing with terrorists that are Islamist-inspired, Islamist-inspired terrorists, and that it is a wicked ideology that has to be discredited. That's one of the pillars in this strategy for taking it on. It's not just about whack-a-mole, run around the world, and shoot every terrorist you can find. It's about understanding what's motivating them, right? You have to stop the motivation. You have to stop the recruiting, and now that is in our national security strategy. This is the document the government will use to work from.
So changes are happening that kind of fit in line with this this idea. But I think this story is even more interesting, and I would encourage you to look it up. One of my students just went to Morocco and was, was trying to hunt down this school while she was there. These are female Quran experts. These are Islamic scholars in Morocco that are learning what the book actually says. They're not waiting for some man to tell them what it says. And the reason that this is so powerful, when the Moroccan men, Islamic scholars, were going out to the villages to try to tell these young Moroccan fellows, hey, this is what the Quran actually says. You need to listen to me. How many folks showed up in a village to listen to the man come speak? Like 30, right? Just a handful. When a woman Islamic scholar comes to a village, that same village to speak about what the Quran says, how many of those folks show up? 300. Because the woman knows everybody in that village. She knows every woman in that village. And she calls ahead and she makes sure they're there. These men aren't good at coordinating stuff. We don't really plan ahead that far. The women in Morocco are having much better success because they can actually get all the people that need to hear the message into the room to listen to it. And that's critical. This gives them a big leg up. And I think this is... This has been going on for a number of years in Morocco. This is not a new thing. We're just learning about it in the West because we always learn about 10 years after something happens. But this has been been going on in Morocco. And I think that's really a game changer. Um, is this, I mean, that's just big for any religion. These are women being trained as Islamic scholars. How many women are in the Vatican right now studying? To, no, no. Anybody have a clue? I'm going to guess zero. This is a big deal. This is a big thing in any religion, if you think about it. That this is a step towards women leading as as uh, religious intellectuals. That's pretty amazing. So what do you do? I, I, I think the best thing we can do, if we're going to try to separate uh, this religion and you know 1.7 billion people from a few radical uh, terrorist organizations in the world that have this Islamist ideology, use the correct vocabulary. That lets everybody in the world know that we are actually semi-intelligent Amplify those fact-based voices. There are people out there that are saying the right thing. Amplify them. They're doing the right thing. Be inclusive of Muslims. I spoke to an audience one day, and a, a Baptist preacher said, you know, I, I see this, Bap- this uh, Muslim mosque right next door to us, and they're very, they're keeping to themselves. They don't really do anything, and we don't talk, but I see them there. And I said, well, have you invited the prayer leader over to come to one of your sermons? Or have you invited them to do a joint fellowship? You know, they meet on Friday or on Sunday, maybe on Saturday. You guys could have a picnic together. Epiphany. Oh, my gosh, I never thought about that. I mean, just be inclusive. If you don't know somebody, what's the easiest way to get to know what they're like? You kind of have to meet them, right? So that's a key part of this. Interact with it. Um, other people and other religions understand them a little better. That's what I've been trying to do as I wander around the country. And I, th- I think that's that's probably the easiest thing we can do. This is what Muslims usually tell me after I get done talking, because I'm talking about a religion, you, and I'm trying to put it into really simple terms, but usually they get it. They're like, all right, I see what your audience is. You're trying to explain this to non-Muslims. Thank you. You know, that's, that's a good effort. This is what I hear from non-Muslims. I've been doing this for about three years now. I'm giving you the short list. I'm either a closet Muslim who already converted and doesn't know it, um, or I am the biggest bigot in the world and I hate all Muslims or I'm spreading Islam, or I'm defending Islam, or I'm Islamophobic, you name it. If you talk about religion, I'll just give you a hint, nobody is happy, all right? If you don't say it exactly the way they want to hear it, no one is going to be happy with you. So I don't think censorship is the way that we're going to solve this. I think continuing to talk is probably the right answer, and I hope that uh, more people will get out and talk to other folks and other faiths. So I'll I'll leave it at that. We'll take some questions at this point. And thanks for, for coming in today. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Heritage Foundation.
And there is a microphone coming around. We've got one up front here. Okay, thank you. I, I thank you. You have a unique perspective here. I love, I love your presentation. Um, one of my questions, I've studied Islam kind of on and off for about 15 years, and uh, the principle of abrogation, in my view, and what I understand from from everything I've read from the Hadiths and everything, is that is that the uh, the more violent verses happen later in Muhammad's life. So all the peaceful version, the things that you, some of the things you put up about women, for example, everything I've read is they have half the inheritance and they, you know, they can't divorce the man, the man can divorce the wife. There's a lot of very misogynistic language in, in the Quran regarding that. But the violent verses abrogate in, and basically erase the more peaceful version, uh, things that I saw in some of your pr- presentation slides. So how do you, how do you, um, what, what's your view on that, on abrogation? Because that's my understanding of how it works officially in the, um, throughout Islam and Sharia law. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a useful concept to understand. It's one of the reasons I put it in chronological order. So you can see the 23 years, how it changed. And abrogation just meaning that the last thing that God said is the correct thing. Um, but if it doesn't actually, if, if what was said last doesn't directly say, you know, something opposite of what was said earlier, then you haven't abrogated it. It's only if it's, if it's different. So you, you, you have to look at it very carefully. There are scholars who make their whole life out of doing this. I don't want to try to jump into an intro course, but it is an important concept to understand. Um, and there's a lot of arguments and fine points about that. But I think that's a crucial thing to think about as you look through it. Um, study it under, find somebody who's a, a scholar at this and read what they're saying about it because it's, it's not as much abrogation as people assume is happening in the Quran um, and, and how that exactly works and what is, what is the final message. If you read most scholars, they're not going to tell you that the violent messages are the most important ones. And if you get to the end, after the violence, there's actually a peace process and reconciliation at the very end of the Quran in that 23 order. I mean, that's how peace happens and, you know, Muhammad re-enters Mecca. So it actually ends on a peaceful note. So if you want to take a look at it that way, that's the final thing that we should all reconcile in the end of life. Um, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But that is a great point, and it's useful to understand if you're going to study the Quran. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah, um, I certainly agree that we don't want to um, buttress the the narrative that these terrorist groups have. Um, the the Khawarij language is, is uh, controversial as well in and of itself, and some people argue that using it in any context, because the idea of takfir of excommunication is inherently dangerous, that we shouldn't even use Khawarij either. Um, what's your perspective on that? Be, uh, given that. The, the Islamists use takfir, the violent Islamists use takfir as rationale for, for killing fellow Muslims. Uh, I, I, I always defer to those who are, are on the front lines dealing with it. So if the King of Jordan is dealing with these folks up front and he wants to use that term and other leaders across the Middle East are using it, I, I support using language that works for them because they have to live there. Uh, so th- that's really where I stand on it. You know, they're not using, they're not having great scholarly debates about this. They've come up with what's going to work for them and how it speaks to their people. But I think that's a much better word to use. You don't see the King of Jordan you know, screaming that these are Mujahideen who are fighting. You know, we don't want to glorify what they're doing. You know, he wants to call them butchers and people that have left you know, are off, off the farm. You know, they've left the religion. So I think that's an important thing, but best left for those who have to deal with this in their own public sphere on a daily basis. Thank you. Just sort of following on from that, what do you make then of the – so the, there's a very 
you highlighted um, Theresa May's approach about referring to Islamist extremism um, and obviously contrasting with what, what Jordan has done. Where do you think, what kind of language should um, Western leaders be using, do you think? Because we have had an approach where President Obama was very much of nothing to do with Islam and we've kind of President Trump has, has taken a bit of a different approach. Where, where do you see the line? What's the appropriate line in the West? Because in some ways, Western leaders are, they're not dealing with it in the same way as, as in Jordan. But um, Macron, for example, Theresa May, Merkel, they have pressing issues on this front that, that are kind of, I mean, sensitive things to get right. I think it makes the most sense in the West. Uh, a, to not ignore Islam. And I think that's what really happened under the Bush and Obama administrations. After September 11th, when the nation really needed to speak about religion and its relationship to just what just happened, we pushed it down the road, really, for 16 years. We just said, we won't talk about it. It'll be okay. And they very rarely ever spoke about it to explain the differences between a religion and a political ideology. So I think we're in a better place now where Western leaders are actually talking about the term Islamism and showing the Middle East that's been using this term for decades now that we understand what that word means and that it's different than the religion. I think that's a critical piece. And that's that's the track I would suggest Western leaders stay on. Use terms that make sense in the Middle East to the to the people who have to deal with it up front. Uh, that that keeps you on the same page. Um, and, and feel free to talk about religion. I mean, that's it, if there are problems based on it, we should discuss it. It shouldn't be something we hide um, or, or shun just because it's confusing or hard. I get it. This is hard and confusing. I've been doing this for three years, talking to people who walk in the room saying, I, I hate every Muslim. I said, okay, well, this could be an interesting 60 minutes. So have a seat. Let's, let's talk a little bit. You know, I have a lot of good Muslim friends. Uh, I don't hate any of them. They're, they're great people. So I, I think using language that makes us sound like we know what we're talking about is probably a good first step for Western leaders. And I hope we, we stay on that track and don't try to start killing terrorists or extremists again because we're just killing, you know, this term instead of talking about exactly what people think. It's about ideologies. It's about recruiting. And if you can't talk about how they're winning the recruiting battle, you'll never stop the recruiting. And, you know, two generations from now, the U.S. Army is still going to be wandering around the world hunting down terrorists with this ideology because we haven't stopped the recruiting. And I think that's the critical piece. Yes, sir. I just was wondering if you have any comment about the fact that Moses is the most cited prophet in the in the book. Actually, some people say 129. And 129 in Arabic means Latif, Lutf, something made easy. And it referred to a verse in the Quran that speak directly, God speak to the Jew and ask them, follow, uh, follow me and I will reward you. Uh, do you have any comment about it? I uh, kind of lost you at the end of the question there, but just the fact that Moses does pop up so many times in the Quran, I think that's, that says a lot about what the Quran actually means and, and what, what message was, was coming out, especially the early passages. But that story comes up a lot. So it, it is an important thing to understand that Moses is an important figure, uh, in the Islamic community. We, ha we should understand that the prophets of, of, of Judaism and Christianity are very important in, in the Muslim communities around the world. That's a, a tip, a thing that most people don't understand. You know, Jesus is a revered prophet to Muslims and, and we should know that. But Moses definitely stands out amongst, amongst those just for the number of times he is mentioned in the book. It's, it's a critical piece. Yes, sir.
just as an aside, Moses shows up a lot in the uh, Puritan concept, the people who came first to the United States. They were very much interested in what they called the New Testament. But I'm asking, uh, uh, did any scripture exist among the Arabs before the Quran? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about what actually uh, influenced the creation of the Quran. And for example, who who did compile the Quran after Muhammad's death? So, before uh, Islam is founded, before the, the Muhammad prophet relieves, gets these revelations from God through the angel Gabriel, which that is the source of the Quran. That's that was the inspiration behind it. God talking to this prophet. Um, Christianity and Judaism existed, and multiple uh, other religions. And you know, Mecca was a pilgrimage site for the world. There were lots of idol worshipers of, of many sorts. Many, many religions came to Mecca prior to Islam being founded. So it wasn't like he was talking to a crowd that never heard of religion before. You know, the people he was explaining this to had had heard of religion and, and heard about that. When it comes to uh, who compiled it, uh, the, the, there are a lot of different interpretations of Islamic history. Nobody was writing down exactly what happened or recording this on film, so there are debates. But uh, a, a basic story of how it was collected afterwards he recited it. He couldn't read or write, but as he spoke it throughout his life, people memorized it. People would write it down on random objects or, um, you know, stones, calf bones, whatever. They would write this down. He also had a private secretary who traveled with him uh, throughout his time, and, and he was keeping track of this. So after his death, uh, that private secretary and other people kind of made it their mission uh, as guided by the caliph to go collect all these ideas, all the verses, try to put them in. Uh, in order, and there's a lot of debate about what order and how it ended up that way. But it was a collection of those who had memorized it, who had written, possibly written it down when he was alive, and put that together into a Quran. Um, argument over what, how many versions there were before the final version, but that's the basic story. Yes, sir. Thank you. I think you did a pretty good job uh, interpreting uh, the Quran in English, even though. For an Arabic reader or speaker, the Quran is not an easy book to read because there are many, when it came down, there were many new letters in the language that were introduced that were unknown to the people of Arabia. And they were at the time at the pinnacle of their language use. I mean, poetry was like a weapon in some ways that they were so, so advanced. So when this came down, the language was beyond them. It was at another level. And, and at the same time, the book is very musical. And when you read it, it's very easy to kind of like get lost in the verses. So I personally think that that's what kind of sort of uh, creates some kind of ambiguity for people to understand what the words are saying because of those new words that were introduced that people didn't know anything about. And they would go back to the prophet, try to find out what is the meaning of the verse. So I think, I mean, to do it for English is quite an accomplishment as far as time. You can't Sorry. sing my version. <laughs> it does not have that same rhythm. Once you take it out of Arabic, it loses all its the poetic beauty of it, for sure. You should have written it in King James Version. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts? One back here, and we'll come up to you. Uh, so I have a question about Sharia law. I think um, in, in Western media, it seems to be equated with like the hoodoo punishments solely, like stoning adulterers, um, cutting the hands off thieves, but from my understanding, it's, it's a much broader, like you mentioned, um, kind of all-encompassing um, uh, view, like way of life. I think it literally translates as, as the path. Um, so can you just speak on that kind of how sh what Sharia exactly is and how it should be interpreted? 
think it, there are a lot of in differences when we look at it from the West because people a, don't don't know what it is. They've never read the Quran, so they don't even know what what are these commandments. What are the do's and don'ts that are in the Quran? And, and they will add uh, things that are have been. I, I like to say they add a lot of things that are cultural. In our minds, we look at it and go, well, in Pakistan, when when a woman, you know, in that little village over there, I saw a video clip. They pushed a wall on top of a woman for committing adultery. So that must be Sharia law. It's not in the Quran, but that's what they do. And those people were there. They probably had that rule long before Islam showed up in that little village in Pakistan. So that's what gets confusing. If you look in each country, there are so many old cultural rules that still exist that are not in the Quran and can't be found. But if you took it in its purest form and you use those do's and don'ts to influence how you are going to write the law for your country or for your nation or you know for your village, however you're – whatever level you're at, that should be the purest form. You could just take the Quran and start from there. Uh, but we get we get very confused in the West, I think, because we see all the other cultural additives that end up in there, and we assume that everywhere it happens, whatever they're doing, it must be in the Quran somewhere. And if you've never read it, of course, you're going to believe that. I, th- I think that's the important part, and that's one of the things I put in one of my indexes was, you know, kind of, there is an index just for the commandments. Here are all the do's and don'ts. You can flip to them page by page, because it's it's difficult. I get that question all the time. Well, does it say this? Well, look it up. You know, does it say anything about stoning in the index? Then you, good luck finding it in there. I wanted to make sure that was clear because that's an often confused thing. Um, but I think does that kind of help a little bit? Yeah, great. Sir, he's got a mic coming. Uh, is it reasonable to think that uh, Islamism has uh, peaked and we're going to see it recede now? You know, I, I, I'm watching this a battle of wills, a battle of ideas, especially on social media. Social media is coming at the perfect time. There are a lot of people now who can speak out and point out that you know this political ideology hasn't really done very well. In any country that's adopted it, it hasn't really helped the people that much. And, and for most women, it has not been a very good thing. So there is a big discussion about that online, and there are people now arguing against it. It's not the most popular political party in any country, uh, say, except for Egypt maybe. That's, that's the largest number where it, where it kind of took its origin from. But I think it is kind of on the losing end as it's exposed. As any idea or ideology gets exposed for its failures and we see who's glomming onto it, you know, if a terrorist is using your ideology, it's your political ideology, you probably have a bad one. You know, that's, that's usually not a good sign that, that they're using this in, in your name. So I think it is, this is an interesting time to be alive, to watch that discussion go back and forth. And I think we'll find that more people will want to get a little separation between mosque and state instead of bring it closer together. And most people, especially anybody who's moved to America from a country that's lived like that, usually says instantly, I kind of like this division of church and state. This makes sense. This makes life a little bit simpler. Uh, the rules are clearer. So I think it is on the, probably the losing end of political ideologies. Sir. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, you ask us, in effect, um, I think quite properly, to make as clear a distinction as we can for uh, among Islam and Islamism and, and more radical versions. And uh, would it be fair to say, though, that people, average people within the Arabic world or within the Muslim world can also be as confused as we are about those distinctions in some cases and, and that they won't really know whether they're following or are reacting according to to the Quran or not? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you'll find that in, in any society, in any religion, there, there are a lot of people that don't know their own religion and don't know 
their political ideology. They vote the same way every time. They couldn't tell you what their party's platform is, but darn it, my parents and grandparents voted that way, so I'm with it too. So that's an issue. This is where it comes down to education. If you can't have this conversation in your country, then you're never going to be educated on it. And I think this is a an idea that has to happen in every every nation in the world. You should be able to talk about religion and talk about political ideologies and have these open discussions, or you will have a confused populace that will go along with whatever they used to do or whatever their parents told them to do or whatever some political leader that sounds great is telling them to do without understanding what it is. So I think that's a great point. It's an important part of this solution. Everybody has to be educated on these issues. Um, Can you clarify for us the difference between the Sharia and the jurisprudence, the fiqh, and and what percentage of the commandments, what they they live by, is in the um, Quran and in the Hadith, and then the gap between the Quran, the timeline of when the Quran was revealed, and then the Hadith. So to clarify what all that means. I'm not an expert in it, so I don't want to go – much more in-depth on Sharia law, and because this is a long discussion where you want to get into that, and I would want to brush up on it before I, I started speaking about it. This is not something I, I spend my time on. But that is a great point to understand that this is a very deep conversation. You know, studying Islam is is a lifetime event. This isn't something you're going to get in 30 minutes, but that's an important point to understand. There are a lot of differences and just inside the legal looks at it. had a hand down here first. I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure what you said earlier, I, I came in late, but uh, from anything, adding on to anything you've said already, just looking at Western civilization and specifically the United States, when it comes to uh, our legal system, when it comes to our, well, judicial system in particular and, and our courts, what have you seen uh, the Quran influencing our laws and our, our courtrooms? Again, I'm not really a legal scholar, so this is not something I look at. Um, I, I don't know if it is influencing anything or, or what that is. Uh, that's an important thing to look at. I, w- I would hope in America where we have a great separation of church and state that we don't have any more influence of religion in laws, but that's that's really something that our court system is designed to deal with, so they would take that up if it happens. Yes. Do you think that there is currently a strong enough voice against Islamism or for reforming of Islam that um, that it will win in the end? I, I really do think there is a big shift happening, and these shifts usually you don't see when they're when they begin, but you know when they've ended. I think there is a big movement of people that are realizing. That political ideology that has been pushed for decades, um, often by very, you know, violent old men who are not out there, you know, dealing with, with all the repercussions of it, uh, is on the losing end. I, I am seeing it. If I was to read the tea leaves, I think it is on the wrong end of history and, and people are going to push back and want a little more secularism in their countries. They think that will be the improvement, not adding more religion to their life, but, uh, pulling back a little bit. And if we look at the number of non-religious people in the world that is growing, a lot of that is happening outside of the United States, uh, and that's a big movement in our own country. But a lot of that is happening outside of the United States. So I think you're going to see more of that. There is going to be a, more of a call for secularism in this next generation that's growing up in the world today. Uh, so I think that that's going to help uh, bode for that. Yes. So we mentioned the Hadith a little bit. Can you read the Quran and the Hadith separately, or how should you integrate them when you study Islam, especially – 
if a lot of, I think, what people take out as violent or extreme comes more from the Hadith and from the Quran. And even in non-extreme but Muslim-majority countries, some of the more extreme, what we would consider extreme laws, come from that, too. Uh, I would always caution you to read the Quran in its entirety first. I, I, I don't have a lot of books of Hadiths. I look them up occasionally when people reference them. But, you know, the Quran is the cornerstone. That That is where all things should start and finish if you're trying to understand Islam as a religion. If there are certain Hadiths that, you know, 99% of the Muslims in the world agree with, then that's probably a, a useful Hadith to understand and study. But if it's controversial in any way or if, you know, half the Muslims in the world think it's those are that whole book of Hadiths is is not worth reading. You can read it to understand what the problem is, but I, I always tell people, go back to the Quran. I mean, that's the source. If a Hadith contradicts the Quran, then you have to go back to the Quran. I mean, that is that is the way it is, this is set up. So I, I, th I would caution you to work it that way. We have time for one more. All right. Sir. Um, looking at uh, Turkey today, do you see the Quran influencing that country? I, I, I was—I don't know if you followed what's going on in the court system, the trial system there with the American pastor. That it's very different than what would happen in the United States, and and it seems like maybe it's—I'm not even sure what is cultural, what is Quran, what is Islamic, you know. But um, have you had any? you know, views from the outside looking at that situation? Uh, not a, uh, again, not a legal scholar, but as I look at Turkey and what's going on in the world, I, I definitely think they are they are struggling with this idea because they have a very charismatic leader and he is leaning uh, a lot more towards Islamist ideas and thinking than the Turkey has, has done. I mean, they were, the, they were this country that ended the caliphate and they got rid of the Ottoman Empire and this became Turkey and there was this idea of secularism. That's what it was was founded on in, in many ways. So uh, I think that is one country, especially being a NATO country, that, that the world will have to uh, try to understand better and figure out what's going on. And they will have a lot of conversations in their own country about where they're going to go in the future and how that fits with what the rest of the world is is trending towards. But that is definitely – it's been one that people are watching closely, and I, and I think they will continue to. Great. Thanks for having me out today.